I'm in love with creativity. It's definitely the one thing that gets me up in the morning. I love creativity because I know I don't own it. I don't own my creativity and I'm blessed to have it. I understand that it comes and goes as it pleases, when it pleases. It doesn't listen to me. It doesn't care what I need. My creativity is the independent avatar of its own future. What is it about creativity that is so addicting? It's certainly my favorite thing to do any part of the day is to explore that creativity, be one with it, really combine with it and let it swirl around my head until we come together to form a new vision. To have an idea so grand and wonderful that never struck me before, to have it strike all of a sudden, that eureka moment, wow, wow, wow. My creativity is the perfect mistress. I love her. I wanted to explore the topic of creativity with others in the field. Find out what it is that makes them tick, but perhaps not even limit it to others within the fashion field, but also to the executives, to the CFOs, to the CEOs. How does their creativity allow them to run their businesses the same way as a designer? How does their creativity allow them to come up with the concepts and illusions that become the products that we need and eat? and where and so we started the creative conversation a moment in time where I could meet with the fellow creatives in my world and ask them the questions that I so desired to know to help me better understand my own creativity a form of therapy perhaps our first creative conversation is with Nicholas Liu a superb independent jewellery designer based in New York I didn't want this podcast to be interrupted by my voice. I actually hate my voice. I wanted Nicholas to answer the questions and for those answers to be directed at you, the audience. For you to have this creative conversation with Nicholas. And so if you have 15 minutes to spare, please lend us your ear as we discuss creativity in all its forms. This is the Accessories Almanac Creative Conversation. Episode 1 with Nicholas Liu. There's so many aspects of jewelry that appeals to me. It's just the, well, the lifestyle. It's the, also the grandeur of it. And also what I love about jewelry is it's not really also about the piece of jewelry. Jewelry in itself, the actual object, is a very, um, you buy jewelry at very important moments in your life. So it marks as times in your life good or and bad and it's just also that has, it has like a talisman quality to it that follows you throughout your life and you remember oh i got this piece of jewelry during this you know yes it's the same for clothing but more so jewelry is seen an investment because of the materials so it's that in itself is already precious also you have infinite amount of details not everybody cares about them but the people who do, you know, when I pick up a piece of jewelry and I see someone has thought about that tiny, minuscule detail that no one else will see, it's just, it, it's very life-giving. I don't know why, but it's just, oh my God, someone was OCD enough, like me, to, to think about that. 
so I'll give you a bit of background uh, about myself. So I started, I'm from Hong Kong, and I was, it was always art and design and jewelry that I kind of fell into. At school, the school I went to in Buckinghamshire, just outside London, they had a very good jewelry program. So I actually started doing furniture, but the course wasn't quite up to scratch. So I, I hopped over to the jewelry classes and found that was amazing. What I loved about it was in one small, tiny object, you can have infinite details. And that's really what my passion of jewelry, you know, came out of. After that, I went to intern for a few people, Lara Boeing, Sean Lean, the kind of fashion crowd in London. And then I went back to Hong Kong to, uh, to work for a few years and then went back to London to do my master's at the Royal College of Art. And that was a very different experience going back to London. My expectations was a lot higher and the Royal College of Art, I had very different expectations of the school, of what it gave me. Um, I was expecting it to be a lot more fashion-driven, a lot more um, innovative, and um, just more in touch with the industry, but they weren't. Their style of schooling is very much design what you want and your clients will come. There is no realistic schooling for how to run a business or if you're a jeweler, how to actually get your portfolio out there or anything. It was more if you wanted to do art jewelry. But saying that, I am very thankful that they taught me the ability to truly design and not design from a merchandising point of view, which is a lot of American schools, that's how they start. You start immediately designing backwards of what kind of a brand you want to be, what kind of price points you want to hit, what is your target clientele, and you design to fit them. Whereas the English way of art and design, which I'm very thankful the Royal College gave me and my undergrad gave me, was you design, it's really about you and your expression of creativity, and then your clients will come. There is truth to that, but going that route is a lot more difficult. So when I moved back to Hong Kong, I was with Blanc de Chine, a fashion house, a luxury fashion house in Hong Kong. So I designed all their accessories and their jewelry. Alongside that, Hong Kong society is quite small. I started doing a few pieces here and there for some private clients, and I really enjoyed that process because you were tailor-making a piece of jewelry completely for them. Fine jewelry. Costume jewelry is very difficult to custom just because the materials and the labor cost, it doesn't quite make sense. And I really enjoyed that. And then, so after I finished with Blanc de Chine, I came to New York by chance on vacation. And I reached out to Alexis Pitar. And he wasn't hiring at the time. But when I went back to Hong Kong, he was actually like, well, you know, there might be this position if you're interested. And he was looking to start his fine jewelry line. So I moved over to New York with Alexis Pitar and I did all his press collections and things like that. And then I decided to start my own line. I thought, you know, this is something that I always wanted to do, a more commercial line, because I was always in the more luxury side of jewelry with a private clientele, with Blanc de Chine and, and all the rest of it. Alexis Batar brought me to New York, um, and, and then after a year, um, I decided to start my own collections. The hardest lesson for me to learn really was that, unfortunately, you cannot trust people. People will always do what benefits them and not you. And obviously, this is human nature, but I would have liked more support when I started my own brand. You, you are fighting 24-7 every day of the week. There's not one moment you are not fighting for your brand. So unless you really feel 
110% that you are willing to give your life over to this brand, do it. If you have any smithering of a doubt and say, you know what, I kind of want to go on vacay, I kind of have this wedding coming up, I kind of... <laughs> no, that will never work. Consignment is not fair for the, for the jeweler or the independent designer. I understand why they have to do it, but they should... The retailers should consign with the larger brands to allow them the opportunity to buy smaller brands, to support the smaller brands. But consignment, I'm in so much debt because I have consigned. So the, the buyer would come in. So I actually started, let me backtrack. I started my fine jewelry line in New York about five years ago. I started with five pieces. The collection is called Vertigo. It was based on the New York grid pattern, very geometric, very minimal. And it was meant to be uh, all solid 18 karat gold. It's pieces of jewelry that you wear every day. I didn't want you to take it off. It was just super easy and it goes with everything. I started with five pieces. And I went to the showroom. I went to the buyers at first. No one would talk to me. So I finally signed up with a showroom and the showroom was like, okay, well, five pieces is not enough. You really have to build a collection. Fine, I build a collection. It went from 5 to, to 15 pieces. 15 pieces, not quite enough. Okay, so I went to 30 pieces. 30 pieces, not quite enough. The buyers always wanted more. They were like, oh, I can't choose things for the cabinet. The cabinet is, you know, however feet long, like two feet long, wide. You have to fill it with as much product as possible. I ended up with a 54-piece collection, and even then that wasn't enough for them. They couldn't simply choose. And what the retailers the retailers that did choose chose like four things out of 54. Not only that, you ended up with consignment, you end up making special pieces specifically for that store. The store in um, East Hampton is not going to want the same colorway as the store in downtown Manhattan. So then you can sign all this and after three months they give you a call and say, oh, guess what, yeah, all our clients have already seen the jewelry, so you have to, you know, replenish, change, switch it out. It doesn't matter, it didn't sell, put it in the other retailers. So you're constantly moving product around and it gets scratched, things get damaged and they, the store doesn't get paid, you, they don't pay for any of that. You as a jeweler are paying for all the refurbishing costs for all the jewelry and each time they ship something somewhere, you're paying for all of that. With consignment, they don't, a lot of stores, I would say 99% of stores are not truthful about when they sold that piece of jewelry. So you always have to follow up and chase them. And then after you follow up and chase them, it's 90 days until they pay you. Even though you're, you're, it's net 30 on your invoice, what are you going to do? Sue them? What, you're going to go after a big retailer? Of course not. Another retailer wanted to place an order of $100,000. Super happy, right? No. You had 24 hours to replace anything in their cabinet. That means for that $100,000 order, you had to have back stock of another $100,000 to replenish. It was insane. But because they are so used to being able to call the shots, they have forgotten what it is like to be the independent designer, not being able to afford to do all these things. That's why everything you see in the retail landscape right now in a physical store is super boring because they're just trying to sell what sells. Designing a collection is less than 10% of what you will actually do. And truly 
please believe in when I say when you are a designer for your own brand, 99% of your time is really managing that 1% that you have designed. Designing that earring or that collection, it will take you like a few minutes. You know, as a designer, you're like, oh, this is an idea. Let's sketch this out. Love it. Let's expand on that collection. Done, done, done. You know, that is the easiest bit. And guess what? That lasts 30 minutes. And then for the rest of the year, you are managing that 30 minutes. You're managing everything around that 30 minutes of inception. Are you ready for that? As a lot of designers uh, think when they start their line, oh, they're going to sit in this wonderful studio, bright, they're loft, and they're just going to put pen to paper, and it's going to be amazing. They're going to send the drawing off to Italy or wherever they're going to get it made, and they're going to fly to this romantic country to look at the artisans who make their jewelry. Guess what? I produced my um, jewelry collection one of the best factories in Hong Kong. You are stuck in a factory in the middle of nowhere overnight, like arguing with this craft person who is stubborn and who won't budge on a detail that you're paying him for. And you're like, I don't understand why I'm having this argument with you right now. Just get it done. You are just, no one speaks about all the knit and gritty that goes into producing this collection. And the tiny, tiniest things as a designer mean so much to you, don't mean anything to the clients. And, and I'm not saying not to do it, because as a designer, it's your duty to do that. It's, you know, you fulfill that dream. Finding the right paper quality for your business card, finding the right... And all this really does come together, and it makes a difference. But you are managing all of that, and that's what I wanted someone to tell me. You really are managing. You're not... You no longer really design... How do I stay inspired? So I'm a bit obsessive about details. You know, I'm not great with the overall. You know, some people look at over, um, architecture and they look at the building as a whole. I don't tend to do that. I tend to go straight into what do the hinges look like? What does the screw look like? Are all the screws aligned? Are all, you know, is it uh, flush? Is you know, is the, what, how does a tile work with the other surfaces? You know, what are the surface and matte finishes that are catching my eye? I tend to go to those kind of details than the overarching theme. And I find a lot of solace and a lot of inspiration through that because that's also where the devil is in the detail. That's where someone has actually thought about this hinge or this the placement of this door, the placement of the tiles on the floor, those kind of things I find very inspiring. So for me, creativity is great, but it needs to translate into something that people can actually wear and is somewhat practical. Um, I do cre see creativity as a solution to a problem. I mean, it's great to have things, and, you know, I, I interned for Philip Tracy, and that was one of the most... I mean, for me, he was so, so creative. It was wonderful, and it didn't have to be that practical. You know, it really was a showpiece, and it was for that lifestyle. And that expression of creativity was truly beautiful to see to be, and to be part of. But people nowadays don't have that lifestyle, you know. So I feel like with creativity, you have to be quite practical about it. I'm not saying it has to be utilitarian, but it does have to have a sense of being able to, you know, not snag on... I see a lot of um, some students' jewelry and the things they design. Yes, it's very creative, but it's 100% not wearable. 
And yes, you might want to gear yourself towards that if you want to do art jewelry. Then, but make sure that you understand that is what you're doing. That you are making gallery art and you're not making a practical piece of jewelry. And if that's where you want to go, that's completely fine. But don't expect to be in a retail store and wonder why retailers aren't coming to you because you made this wonderful piece of jewelry out of paper. Guess what? Nobody can wear it. It's a terrible business. I wish I had more positive um, feedback and guidance for younger designers, but in a way, I feel like people need to hear desi young designers need to snap out of that dream. Anna Wintour on the Fashion Fund mentioned that you should work for other people while you start your own line, and I 100% agree. Work for other people and slowly develop your line and make sure this is. Ex it will work before you've truly quit your day job and think, yeah, I'll be fine. Yeah, I can live off of this. All my friends tell me it looks great. Guess what? Until your friends actually part money with full retail cost of what that piece is worth, do it. If not, you know, all your friends and family will they'll be like, oh, yeah, that looks great. Yeah, so... 50% off? 30% off? They naturally, they will be supportive because they have to be. They're the people in your sphere that will support you in your dream. But supporting you in your dream emotionally is very different from actually parting with money. Finding people to part with money for your product is very difficult nowadays. That was the Accessories Almanac Creative Conversation, Episode 1, with Nicholas Liu.